Good morning. My name is Rusty. I'm a pastor here. It's my privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. Again, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Hebrews chapter 5. And closing out this chapter and moving in to chapter 6. And it's my pleasure again to bring a rebuke uh, from the text. Uh, he encounters uh, a change of direction today. We've been tracking on this high priest picture and this picture of righteousness for several weeks now, having already turned the corner from the wilderness and the promise that we were supposed to enter into in chapter 4. And as we enter into today, what I want you to try to do throughout is really try to frame this week and next week inside of our mission to know, love, and obey. You're going to see in our outline this week and in next week, even without our specifically trying to do so, these pictures of what it means to first know God, and then what love is going to look like, and then finally what obeying has to be, not just for the Christian, but then specifically for us and our mission. And so the title of today's sermon is Dragons and Grasshoppers. Dragons and Grasshoppers. The first point for you today is simply wake up. Wake up. Our author has this purposeful pause for us as he continues in the text. He says, about this we have much to say. And if it were just that in a vacuum, we might assume that he's going to continue to say more about it. We have much to say. In fact, have you considered this? And have you considered this? And have you considered this? There's so much to talk about here. And indeed, he's going to do that in short order towards the end of chapter 6. But that's not what he does here. He says, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. It's about this we have much to say. About what? What do you have so much to say about? I hope clearly from context you can tell it's the preceding argument that he makes, right? But it's, listen, it's not simply Melchizedek, right? If you, if you cursory read through Hebrews, you encounter this picture of Melchizedek and you're like, hey, I don't know what that means. And that seems kind of complicated to me. That must be what he's talking about here. Well, it is in a sense, but it's not just that. But what about that high priestly role that he just kind of unpackaged for us? Maybe it's about that. Well, it is, but that's not the primary component. What's the primary component that we heard about last week? Is it simply the high priesthood? Is it simply the fact that he's after the order of Melchizedek? It's not. It's righteousness. Righteousness. About righteousness we have much to say. Righteousness in a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what we have lots to say about it. Why? Because he's contrasted for us Jesus' obedience, his learned obedience into righteousness. He's contrasted that in chapter 5 against what? What we spent so much time in chapter 4 talking about, rebellion, unbelief. He spent his time talking about comparing Jesus' obedience, his faith, in the face of Israel's and our rebellion and unbelief. And about this we have much to say. That that righteousness is ours. And what that means for us in relation to securing a superior covenant for us through Jesus' being made perfect in the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot to say about that. 
And then he says it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. It's hard to explain that that righteousness is ours and what that means for us in relation to securing a superior covenant for us through Jesus being made perfect in the order of Melchizedek. Why is it hard to explain? Is it the complexity of the material? Is that statement that I just read complex? Is it the inability of the writer of Hebrews to be able to describe it rightly? To explain it? Is he not a good enough teacher? Is he not a good enough writer? That's not what he says. He says it's because you have become dull of hearing. The CSB says that you are too lazy to understand. It's not due to the complexity of the material or the inability of the writer. It's the fact that the listeners are slow to learn. They're slow to learn. Because you become dull of hearing. I like to watch westerns. I enjoy those probably more now that Jeff is in my life. But I've always kind of liked westerns. And there's always that dude who's missing most of his teeth, is drunk, but apparently has something to say to someone. And the person doesn't know what to do with what's being said. And that drunkard yells at him, are you dull, boy? Do you not understand? See, for us, we think of dull, and if you Google it right now, trying to find any movie that says that, all you're going to get is, uh, is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, right? That's the only quote that is apparently out there with dull in it. So I can't find any other movies, but I know them. I've seen them. You've heard that yelled, right? Are you dull, boy? Do you not understand? And it's that dullness of that time that we're talking about. It's not just boring. It's not just nothing to do. It's, it's stupid, it's dumb. It's dull. The information hits you. I say something to you. And not only does it not register, but it doesn't do anything. Nothing happens. It's like talking to a wall. In woodworking, very early on when I'm teaching it, I tell people that the safest tools are the sharpest tools. People are always worried about getting cut. They're always worried about bleeding, which is an appropriate thing. It's a good fear. We live in that fear, respect that fear. But recognize that that usually comes from dull tools. If you want to ensure that your child kills themselves with a knife and a stick, give them a dull knife. They will put so much effort into trying to make the simplest cut that it will slip and it will cut them. But when a tool is appropriately sharp, it is safe. It does what it is supposed to do. When tools are da- or dull, they are a danger to yourself and to others. Church, when we are the dull boy, when we are too lazy to understand, when we are dull of hearing, we are a danger to ourselves and to others. See, the, the language here between dull and lazy and the different things doesn't particularly matter because, as one preacher said, the laziness and ignorance sleep in the same bed. It's the same thing. In this particular case, this type of dullness, this ignorance, this hearing the information and not doing anything with it is laziness. It's the same bed. And I think that's important because, as we'll see in a moment, that's why the answer is constant practice and training themselves. Constant practice and training go fly in the face of ignorance, fly in the face of laziness. 
If the answer that we're supposed to chase is those two things, then we can recognize that whether it's dullness of hearing or whether it's too lazy to understand, we find ourselves in the same bed. And I can relate to this idea of being dull of hearing. Those of you that may not know, I am 60% deaf. It's hereditary. Music certainly hasn't helped what what remains. Um, It's hereditary from my grandma to my mom to me. Um, I'm the one that used to have to go out to the hearing uh, test in elementary school multiple times because I failed it. Uh, Mostly because I started raising my hand before the test started. Because uh, I didn't know that uh, I couldn't, my ears are always ringing, so they're like, we haven't started yet, you can put your hand down. Good to know, I'll be back. Um, it's been my experience, I, I, my hearing is rough. Uh, what ha- that has done, in short order, has trained my other senses. You hear that mostly from like blind people or deaf people, your other senses become superhuman? No, they, they don't. They're, mine are at least 60% better, I guess. It trains your other senses. For me, I think about my experience on this planet in relation to being dull of hearing. And I find my other senses having maybe shifted or emphasized in different ways. My eyes, I'm trained towards design and art and color. I love nature and natural materials. I think about touch. I like natural materials because I like texture. I know what wood actually feels like. I I enjoy stone and and metal and things like that. With touch, it's also music. I can't hear everything as well as others. While I can run a soundboard, I'm probably not the best person to be able to do that. I'm missing things. But I can feel it. I feel music. If you ask me to describe how I play, it's through feeling. That's why I enjoy the rhythm section and bass and drums. When it comes to taste and smell, I mean, that's, that's cooking, that's coffee, tobacco profiling. I can pick out notes and fragrances and, and tastes with my taste or my smell. And then what I found with my hearing is that it has changed the way that I think cognitively. I have to connect the dots in conversation. I, don't, I usually don't hear the beginnings of what people are saying because I'm not paying attention yet. And I often don't hear the end because most people trail off and they're vocally when, when they're speaking. And so I get the middle. So imagine getting like a, a, a five-paragraph essay and not knowing what the thesis is or what you're actually trying to say with it in the conclusion, right? So I have, I have all your support, and I don't know which way you mean it. So I have to fill in a lot of dots in conversation. But my brain has gotten really good at filling in those missing pieces. I can tell by your tone how you intend to use your arguments. I can tell by your mannerisms how you're trying to support or go against an argument. And what that has done is allow me to fill in those missing pieces, sometimes coming to the wrong conclusion, uh, but then accidentally convincing you in the process that that's what you meant, which is my favorite thing. (laughs) It leads to creativity, to discernment and vision. And so in many ways, my weakness has become and led to one of my best strengths. Now, the temptation's certainly there for me to act dull, lazy. I didn't hear you. (laughs) It's my get-out-of-jail-free card all the time, right? It's hard work to try to hear. It wears me out. When I'm in a conversation with people or or just having to listen, it wears me out. I have to give extra energy to listen. And so the temptation's certainly there to be dull, to be lazy. It's just not in my head, which I do. My question then is, what's your tendency, though? Do you take 
what might be a weakness and turn it into a strength? Do you develop these other senses? Or do you lean into the idea, the freedom that comes from being dull and lazy? You see, the people that we're talking about today, at least, are not people that we're questioning their salvation on, generally. We've settled that argument, all right? Go back and listen to that if you need to. If you're a sheep, you have the opportunity to just lay in the field because God has brought you there. Psalm 23, right? And just be there. To just lean into laziness. And the danger then is when held accountable for it, I can almost guarantee you that your tendency is then going to be to blame it on others. To blame it on others. What do you think the recipients in Hebrews are thinking? Well, you could explain it a little bit better. Could you send some pictures? Do you think you might have a better, you know, example for me? Maybe you could give me some more application so that I can actually understand. Maybe God didn't make me smart enough to be able to understand all the complexities of what you're talking about here. Oh, you know, I didn't ever have those opportunities to learn as much. I didn't get to go to to seminary or Bible school. There's all sorts of excuses. There's all sorts of reasons. But what does he say? It's because you've become dull of hearing. God's word has already been condescended from the unknowable God to the knowable. You can know it. When we talk about knowing, loving, and obeying, we're talking about this. Don't blame it on anyone else. We hear this all the time as a preacher. Not being fed. Oh, you're choking. That's the problem. We can work on that. Can you give some more examples? Read the Bible. I'm not hearing away it. I need it. And you're dull of hearing. As much as my hearing is a real issue, I cannot blame it on other people. I ask them to accommodate me. That's what God has already done. He's accommodated us and bringing his language and himself down to where we can understand a miracle in and of itself. I, I need people to talk louder. I know my brother pastor's wives uh, labor with me when they say, when they get home and they're like, I'm not rusty. You don't have to yell anymore. Uh, thank you, sisters. Um, People accommodate me in many ways. I need them looking at me so I can see their lips. I, I hate it when people talk like this. They just slap your hand, like covering your mouth. But it's me, right? It's my fault. I have to own that. I want to ask, can you own your dullness, your laziness? Can you overcome that? Can you push through it? Because the author here is clearly saying, as opposed to any Hallmark movie you might watch, it's not me, it's you. It's very clear about that. Wake up. Pay attention. Because immediately he calls us into something quite high. It's not just you should understand, but you should be able to teach it. You should be able to teach it. The ultimate test of understanding. So my second point today is to grow up. Grow up. He holds before us what we should be versus what we are. What they should be versus what they are. He says, for you ought to be a teacher by now. For by now you ought to be a teacher. 
I think it's worth noting for us that the verb as translated ought implies an obligation. It's not just a desired characteristic. It's not a you ought to know better, as in it would seem nice if you knew what the appropriate thing to do would be. It's you should be, you must. It's an obligation to be a teacher. Now listen, he's not being hard on those who are trying their best. All right? We don't have today in mind new believers. If, if you've recently come to Christ, this isn't aimed at you, okay? It's expected that you're at where you're at. The people that he is in mind today are those who have just become professional listeners. Professional listeners. We're talking about those people that have been in the pew for 10, 20, 40, 50, 60 years and made no growth and maturity in Christ. Those who are dull of hearing. Because there's an expectation of maturity in the scriptures, of being able to teach other believers, not just for the elders, not just for fathers, but for all believers. To be able to teach other believers, discipling them. The Great Commission is not for the church ambiguously. It's not for the elders. It's for the people of God. All believers should be able to make disciples. You should be able to instruct others in the way of your master. That's what it means to disciple. And so this expectation of maturity carries throughout. We have it in Galatians 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them. You say, well, I'm a woman and I'm not supposed to teach or have authority over a man. I agree. However, you are still supposed to teach. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What a high calling to train the next generation. And for what specific reason? That the word of God, which is everything that we're talking about today, may not be reviled. But the reviling of the word is everything that you find in the feminist agenda. It's everything that you find in the deconstruction movement. It's everything that you find in those movements that seek to hold the word of God lesser than themselves. But if we had older women who are godly and are able to teach others, training the young women to love their husbands, training them to love their children, teaching them to be self-controlled, teaching them to be pure, teaching them to how to work at home, teaching them to be kind, teaching them to be submissive to their own husbands. And we find the word of God upheld and not reviled. And so we are all ought to be teachers if you have any amount of time as a Christian. And what would that look like to be a teacher it gives us two specific things that we want to contrast with the one who is a teacher and then with what they are not. It's this, skilled in the word of righteousness. To be skilled in the word of righteousness. And so when I talk about Titus 2, verse 5, being for the purpose of the word of God not being reviled, it's for this reason, because you're skilled in that word of God. You're skilled in that word of righteousness. The CSB would say that the ones who are mature are experienced with the message about righteousness. 
experienced with it. And it brings maturity. When you are skilled in the word of righteousness, it means that you are mature. You have grown up. Because solid food is for the mature. So we have this picture of solid food versus milk. And it's not the only time that we see this in Scripture. Paul does it as well. But we have this picture that solid food is for the mature and it brings maturity along with it. And it's an example of someone who is mature. And specifically, what is that food? It's the word of righteousness, being skilled in it. You see, milk is fine. This is not downplaying milk. Milk is healthy and milk is helpful. It's good. It's even necessary. But notice the relationship of what we're trying to establish in maturity. A man should have solid food. That should be his steady diet, right? But he can drink milk and be fine, correct? However, he will fade in his strength. But notice that a baby can drink milk, but it will perish on solid food. It's dangerous. You say, well, what's meant by maturity? How, if the mature are able to be skilled in righteousness, then, then how do I know what that looks like? What does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be fully grown? Let's ask Spurgeon for that. I think this is helpful. He says this, what is meant by men that are full grown? Well, you know, a babe has the same parts as a man. The babe is perfect in its measure, but it is not perfectly perfect. Those limbs must expand. The little hand must get a wider grasp. The trembling feet must become strong pillars for ripening manhood. The man must swell and grow and expand and enlarge and be consolidated. Now, when we are born to God, we have all the parts of the advanced Christian. Faith, hope, love, patience, they're all there, but they are all little, all in miniature, and they must all grow. And he is of full age whose faith is vigorous, whose love is inflamed, whose patience is constant, whose hope is bright, who has every grace in full fashion. That's what it means to be mature. We're not saying that the babe is not a Christian. We're not saying that the babe is anything but saved. We are saying that he is not perfect. He's not mature. He's not complete. <coughs> and so how do we then get that maturity? How do we swell and enlarge and grow and consolidate, expand? How do we take faith, hope, love, and patience and make it vigorous and inflamed and constant and bright? How does that happen? It's by constant practice. He says, having their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. And so Spurgeon goes on to say, we're not only talking about the development, we're not just talking about it in beginning, as it were. He says the full grown man is stronger than the babe. His sinews are knit. His bones have become more full of solid material. They are no longer soft and cartilaginous. There is more solid matter in them. So with the advanced Christian, he is no longer to be bent about and twisted. His bones are as iron, his muscles as steel. He moveth himself in stately paces. Neither needeth he any upon whom to lean. He can plow the soil. He can reap the corn. 
Deeds that were impossible to infancy are simplicities to the full-grown man. Now you understand what the full-grown Christian is. He can do. He can dare. He can suffer. What would have frightened him before? He can fight with dragons, though once he would have fled before a grasshopper. He can now endure to pass through deep waters, though once a little brook would have swept him away. It's not just about becoming a big baby. It's about becoming a man. Do the grasshoppers in your life that pop up frighten you? Are you swept away by a brook? Or do you work and dare and suffer, even though those things may have frightened you before or even still frighten you? Do you slay dragons and pass through deep waters? You see how that changes from a soft, mushy, bendable, foldable child into a strong, grown man who knows what he is and acts as such. You act like a man. Do you move like a man? Do you dress like a man? Do you talk like a man? Have you grown up into maturity? You know, it's supposed to be a joke, right, when Grandpa gets down with the baby and acts like he's going to take his milk. Stop it, Grandpa, you're so silly. It's supposed to be ridiculous. So much so that even the kids know that it's silly. They know better. And what a travesty it is when a full-grown man, through laziness and ignorance, refuses to train and practice and grow up into maturity and actually takes the bottle and suckles. We're going to talk about what you need to know later. But first, I want to emphasize how. It's by training and by practice. Because there's two errors that we find all the time. On one hand, we have people who know the right thing, but they never practice them. And so they've not actually developed their powers or senses of discernment. This is the theological egghead who knows all the right answers, who knows all the stuff that I'm going to encourage you to know in just a little bit, but doesn't do anything with it. There's no actual training here. There's no actual practice here. And then on the other hand, we have people who train the wrong things. Train the wrong things because it's not a question of will you train, will you practice, it's what will you practice. And on this end, we have people who train the wrong things. We have so many people, and so often we ourselves spend so much time in constant practice training ourselves in all sorts of things, like complaining or discontentment or fear or grumbling or arrogance or sexual immorality. One preacher gave an example. He said on Monday, 6 o'clock to 7 p.m., there's a class at the community center on how to complain effectively. I'm like, I don't need to go to that class. I could teach that class, right? These are the things that we spend time training ourselves in, practicing how to be afraid, 
practicing, getting rep after rep after rep, repetition after repetition, and grumbling. Day after day. You're only supposed to train that muscle once to twice a week. You're getting in seven days of work. We have to be about training. So what does training look like? How do we become mature? We have to recognize that it's putting these things into practice. It's putting these things into practice. What's the secret to training? Well, the problem is, is that there's no quick fix. You say, I want to fix these. I want to stop being a professional grumbler. I would like to quit teaching that class. How do I fix it? There's no quick fix. But there's, at the same time, I want you to recognize this. Listen, time flies, okay? It absolutely flies. So while there's no quick fix today, you'd be surprised how quickly tomorrow comes. What do I mean by that? I started a new sport this past year. Many of you have found out by now. Um, Jiu-jitsu. It's a martial art. It's my first martial art. It's my first non-sport sport, I guess. You walk in not knowing anything, and people that are like a quarter the size of me can literally kill me. Know nothing. Six months later, you feel like you know everything. You still know nothing, okay? Six months in, and you realize how quickly that time has passed and how much changes so quickly so that when that new person comes in, in their eyes, you do know everything. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Putting time into things starts back in the summer for me. It had to start sometime. If it didn't, then I would still be where I was. There's no quick fix. It was a long six months, but the six months are already here. The next six months will be here before I know it. It'll be a year by then. You think about the other things in my life that I've trained and understanding the difference between the basics and what actually training and constant practice looks like, maturity looks like, weightlifting. If I had to go into the gym every time and remember how to grip a dumbbell or what an exercise actually worked, like if I had to go to the bench press and be like, this one does not work the legs, I'm not going to be very effective. It's not mature weightlifting. If I have to worry about the basic movements every time, I'm not going to make any progress. I'm going to consistently, for 20 years, be a babe. And when someone doesn't know that, for instance, Matt joined me in weightlifting last year, he asked to go with me so that I could show him the ropes. And I did, and he picked it up. And now six months has gone very quickly, doesn't it? It does. So while he's learning the basic movements, making sure that his arms are in the right position as he comes down, making sure that he's not crushing his face and actually putting on his chest, these type things, what am I worried about? I'm thinking about full targeting of the muscles. I'm thinking about isometrics. I'm thinking about the percentage of the one rep max, the circuits that I might move in, how many times I've hit this muscle this week. He, this, he doesn't need to know that yet. He's still drinking milk in the weight room, but he's moved on. He's eating solid meat now. For music, if every time we got up here, we had to say, all right, F-A-C-E, crap, that's trouble clef, I play bass. All cows eat grass, that's, that's right, that's what mine is. If I have to do that every time we play music, it ain't gonna sound really like anything. If I have to remember how my instrument works, where the volume knob is, you won't hear anything. Now that could be their fault, but I'm not gonna throw them under the bus. 
What am I worried about when I'm up here? I'm worried about syncopation, listening to the band, setting up the next section, not even thinking about what we're playing now, thinking about what's coming. Flourishes that I do to serve the lead vocals for Greg and, and different members of the congregation. I try to hit notes that you guys are singing, whether you realize it or not, that's what I'm doing. Woodworking, if I had to think about how to use my machines versus them now becoming an extension of me. Shooting in self-defense, there's a big difference between having a gun versus knowing how to shoot the gun versus actually being trained in self-defense. You're not trained in self-defense if you simply own a firearm. There's a difference as we move through. Public speaking, cooking, driving, theology, typing, video, design, all of these different skills that we have. When you go out there, God help you if you have to remember where the key goes. God help us. We're supposed to grow up in these things. I want to revisit music. If you ever see me up here playing and I cock my head funny, I don't know if you've seen that, I kind of go like that, right? Like I have Tourette's all of a sudden. <laughs> Even thinking about it, I, like, I can't help it. It's what I do. When do I do that? I do that when I hear notes that are wrong. I cannot do that with vocals, as you're going to experience here in about two minutes. Um, I cannot do that with vocals. I can't tell the difference, much to my wife's chagrin. You can pray for her. But when it comes to instruments, I can tell the difference. I can hear it. I can hear when someone or myself, it's not me, other people hit the wrong note, right? I can hear that, and it just, it hurts. Like, it hurts my neck. That's why I'm doing that. I'm not trying to distract you. I apologize, but I can't help it. Spurgeon says this in relation to hearing and the music. He says, he wants to have the keynote of the gospel constantly before him, the keynote, what it's supposed to be, the tuning fork, constantly before him. And any divergence from the grand old tune of orthodoxy, which he's learned from the word of God, at once makes him feel wretched. He can tell, he has a fine, keen, discerning ear. He can tell at once any mistake and is not to be led astray by it. Hence it is that such persons are fit to hear the solid doctrines of the gospel preached. Why? Because they have listened to the voice of God. They have heard the charms of evil and they've despised them. They have heard the conversation of educated saints. They have been taught in the ways of the Lord and knowing, therefore, the difference between this and that, they can discern between good and evil. And they are not to be led astray. That's why we have to grow up. That's why we have to be trained and have constant practice because what is at stake is our ability to distinguish between good and evil. A B flat is not a B. It's close. It's not a B. To take some liberties with the old adage, a heresy by any other name would still smell just as putrid. It's close, but it's not the same thing. And so we find ourselves in a culture of people, the church people, who ought to be teachers. But instead the refrain is this, give me that old time religion. It was good for our mothers. Makes me love everybody. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It will take us all to heaven. That's good enough for me. 
We need to grow up. You ought to be teachers, but what does he say? You're an infant child. You're an infant child. You need milk, not solid food. You are still in the kindergarten. We have churches that are literal kindergartens. They're literal gardens of babies. If you take this picture and think about it, whether or not you belong in kindergarten, ask yourself, a garden of babies, the baby comes when you have to, and you don't really know why you're there. You don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. You may have even been in this particular kindergarten for 10, 20, 40, 50 years. I mean, it could be like spiritual groundhog day for you. Every day, the same as the next. You're still drinking milk, but only when you get a little fussy, and then we know it's time for another bottle. Here's some gospel. There, there. Here comes the plane. Eat it. Open wide. And then we have to make it more exciting each time to make sure that you still eat. Then we pat you on the back lest you throw it all up over us in a fit. And once you get that satisfying little burp, it's my favorite part about feeding a child is the burp. I don't know if I should share this or not, and uh, please don't report me, but I, I bagpipe my kids when we were feeding them. And you hold them and pat and do this little bagpipe squeezing motion. Make sure that you don't do it when they're trying to breathe, all right, that'll, that'll kill them. Um, but as they breathe, you help expel. You just give nice little cushions, right? And you hear that satisfying burp, right? And then you settle them down for a nap, finally, right? So that the more mature can ninja disappear out of the room and actually go get stuff done. And meanwhile, you eventually wake up and you're playing dress up and Daniel Tiger's make-believe with me. And you think that you're something that you're not. You think that you're a policeman. You think that you're a knight going to slay the dragon. But when the grasshopper shows up, you realize you are no such thing. I haven't shared this story in a while, but when we were on sabbatical, we were in Florida, and the house that we were staying at with my folks had a pool, which I think is like automatic in Florida. I guess they all do. We're in that thing, and we're all having fun, and there's the main pool area, and there's what we thought was a hot tub, but it's not. It's more of like a raised seating area that's just as cold as the rest of the pool, which is kind of a trippy thing. Ruthie liked to play up there because there's the bench, and there's essentially a little waiting area. And Jess and I are sitting on the other side. I'm in the water. She's on the edge. And I don't remember anymore. She'll probably, she remembers, I'm sure. But someone saw her underwater over in the little wading pool. And we will fly over there. I'm Michael Phelps over there and almost beat her, which I'm a little impressed by. <laughs> I think we all should be. She gets up, runs around and gets to her, picks her up. And my recollection of the conversation is really all that matters right now. So she talks to Ruthie and says, Ruthie, what are you doing? And Ruthie does her thing, mommy, I was swimming. It's the most terrifying thing I've ever heard in my life, probably until I die. In her brain, she jumped from here on the waiting section into the middle where your feet go and sunk and was just simply swimming to the other side and eventually would put her feet over there and stand up, just as I'm sure she's done before. 
But what actually happened was she jumped into the middle and was swimming and would stay there until she drowned. She thought she was doing something that she was in fact not. My greatest, not fear, because you're only fooling yourself, my greatest struggle in the church is convincing kindergartners that they're in kindergarten. Convincing my child that she was not swimming, but she was in mortal danger is something that I could not do in that moment. And that's where he goes for us. He says this, you need the basic principles of God's revelation. Again, that's an important word. Again, that again is this loop that they're in. This is that Groundhog Day. This is them living on this. You are living on the basic principles of God's revelation and you need them again. Early church father John Chrysostom says this, and teaching a student, he says, it's great folly to lead him on to other things without having first put the first well into him. And so too in the church, if while we constantly say the same things, you learn nothing more, we shall never cease saying the same things. We can't move on to reading until you know your alphabet. You need, again, the first principles. So each time you get your ABCs and we'll keep doing it, but you'll never learn to read if you don't actually learn those ABCs. He goes on to say, since we've devoted our zeal to this, our labors are all for your profit. We shall not cease discoursing to you on the same subjects till you succeed in learning them. We want to move on. I want to get Ruth into the big pool. I want to teach her how to swim. We're not going to stop doing what we must. But you need these again. And you would think that if that's the case, that he would devote the entire letter to those things. But he doesn't. So what does that tell us? It tells us that this righteousness thing that he has much to say, that they're too dull to listen to, is actually the crux, the key to the whole matter unlocking and understanding the double imputation of Christ to us is the key. He can't avoid talking about that. That's part of the basics. You can't move on until you help that. And so in contrast for us, we see then that if you need the basic principles of God's revelation again, you're not well trained in them in the word of righteousness. And thus what? You have poor discernment. You have poor discernment. Alistair Begg says this, the level of our Christian pilgrimage will largely be determined by the level of the people with which we hang. So we either hang with people who are pressing us on to love and to good deeds, or we'll hang about with spiritual babies. And as long as we hang with spiritual babies, we won't feel bad ourselves about being spiritual babies. You have poor discernment. If you're in the kindergarten, you look around and everybody's got a bottle and everyone looks like you and you seem to be in the place that you should be, right? But if you spend time with people who will press you on to love and good deeds, to doing something with your ABCs, you will find that you grow in discernment. 
For instance, there's an apparent revival going on that many of you have heard about and many of you have had questions. I don't have anything definitive to say about it. It's not my place. I don't know enough about it. And it's really frustrating that it happened two weeks after I committed to ignoring the news. Um, so I really don't know that much about it. What bothers me the most and what I'm concerned about in here is asking, is this revival? Before asking, what is revival? Is the sign of a child. I understand you want to know, is this a revival? But if I say yes, do I actually communicate anything to you? If I say no, it's not, do I actually communicate anything to you? Not until you have some semblance of understanding what revival is. You see, it's children that have books that you turn the page and it says bird, tiger, bear. We're not even worried about whether it's a blue jay or a cardinal at this point, and they're completely different colors. It's a bird. The Christian and their ABCs should know what revival is. It's of the species that does this. It flies. Bears don't fly. Is this a revival? No, it's a bear. Is this a revival? Yes, it's a bird. Asking the right questions helps us see what we're actually looking at. For instance... Man, what is worship today? Why are you here? Why are you here? What makes what we're doing today real and faithful and good? How do you know that you're in worship here? The kind of poor discernment that we see in these babies is the kind of poor discernment that would call those who happen to challenge or critique a movement like Asbury's revival outright Pharisees. How dare you even question? Because the passage says to, it tells me to, it, the Bible says so. You should ask those questions. It doesn't make me a Pharisee. You have poor discernment. And where does that poor discernment lead? They cannot distinguish good from evil. Here we are again. Cannot distinguish good from evil. This is the same thing that they were tempted with in the garden. This is nothing new. Can I trust myself instead of God to distinguish good from evil? Moral, legislative autonomy. There's two trees in the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God removed them, lest they eat of the other tree. They thought they knew how to decide and distinguish good from evil. They did not. We, by trusting the righteousness that has been imputed to us through the word of righteousness and constant practice and training, can trust God again to distinguish between good and evil. The babe cannot. And not only can they fail to distinguish between good and evil, but they confuse the two and they end up calling evil good and good evil. For, in, for instance, calling the, the preaching of doctrine evil. They must never have read this passage. Or maybe the author of Hebrews should repent and resign as well. This is where we get deconstructionism from. The whole God's not afraid of your questions thing. Asking the 
challenging all the basics of your faith. Of course, he's not afraid of your questions. He's God. But he does think that your questions are dumb. To quote a recent movie, it's so dumb. So dumb it's brilliant? No, it's just dumb. They're babies. They're unable to grow up. Good and evil is clear. God has spoken and we know. There's nothing to deconstruct. Now, how does this hit us? Well, hopefully you can answer some of those questions. What is revival? What is worship? What are you doing here? What do you expect today? How do you know whether I've done my job or not? Where we're heading is in understanding the word of God. And so let's talk about that. Your posture in coming to the word. When you open up your Bible here, and I pray at home, when you open up your Bible, are you coming to it to have it serve your emotions, your needs, your tasks for the day? Or are you coming in order to serve the Word? You see, someone who won't grow beyond milk is asking the Scriptures to serve your emotions. You do study your Bible, praise God. But every time you open your Bible, you go to those passages that speak to whatever you're dealing with today. Not that you shouldn't or can't use that. I'm going to encourage you to know where those things are. But if your entire Christian walk, if your entire diet is only dealing with the matters for today, only dealing with the specific same passages, then you're living on milk. That's helpful. We're going to be surprised in just a second on what some milk actually is. That's some, some beefy milk. But, but there's more. Because someone who is mature exercises the will through discipline and then through constant practice of using all the scriptures through all of life. You serve the scriptures. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And for instance, because this is what I often hear, stop using the genealogy excuse. If you use the genealogy excuse with me, that tells me more than you want it to. It tells me that you twice a year try reading your Bible and you start in Matthew and you burn out and then you put your Bible down. Or you start in Genesis, maybe you have some success and you hit some of the hard parts of Genesis and then numbers and you're like, I'm out, I'm done, I don't get it. There's more to the Bible than, than those books. There's 66 of them. If you get stuck on six of them, there's 60 left, right? Open your Bible. Serve it. So grow up. Last, move up. Move up. I would say move on, but if you listen to cold pizza, we have to keep it the same. And so move up. Because the other one started, ended with up. That's for you, Jeff. Move up. Go on to maturity, he says. Move up. Wake up, grow up, move up. My job is this, Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. You've all heard it. We, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's me, and teachers, that's also me, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, what? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, what? No longer be children. That's the job. And so what are we supposed to do with that? He says this, leave 
the elementary doctrine of Christ. That's a scary phrase. That's a hard thing to kind of swallow, even for the mature. That sounds a little rough. I feel like I might end up in front of an inquisition with this one. You're moving on from these things. Why aren't you preaching these things? Because the Bible told me to move on from them. Is a hard example to give, but that's what he says. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. (coughs) If you're tracking with our Jewish uh, tinge in Hebrews, he's talking about the message about the Messiah, right? Doc Christ is, is the Greek version of Messiah, right? The message about the Messiah. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ behind. What is that? He says, not laying again a foundation of six things. What are they? Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, and then instruction about four things, ritual washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. These are, these are good things. They're pretty deep things. These are the foundations. This is the gospel. This is a message about the Messiah, the doctrine of Christ. The word of righteousness. And he says to leave them. If we're to go on maturity, why are we supposed to leave behind repentance and faith? Why are we supposed to leave? We're not supposed to leave them behind. We know them. We do them through constant practice and training. I don't have to remember how to repent every time anymore when I walk into the gym of my soul. I don't have to have questions anymore about the resurrection of the dead or my future resurrection because it's not just knowing it, it's hoping for it. It's the engine of my faith. Everything else is built upon the fact that one day I will be judged, but it's not based on my merit, but upon the Righteousness imputed to me by Christ, my high priest, and the order of Melchizedek. A.W. Pink says this, what are the present day applications of this expression to Christians? This, the elementals of our faith are that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that his salvation is perfect and complete, leaving nothing for us to add to it, that the only fitness he requires from sinners is the Spirit's discovery to them of their need of him, The greater the sinner I know myself to be, the greater my need of Christ, and the more I am suited to him, for he died for the ungodly. It was the realization of my ruin and wretchedness which first drew me to him. If I cast myself and all my want and poverty upon him, then he has received me, for his declaration is, him that comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Believing this, I go on my way rejoicing him, thanking him, praising him, living on him and for him. Go on to maturity. He goes on to say this, instead of living in the joyous assurance of their acceptance in the beloved, many give way to doubting. They question their interest in Christ. They wonder, am I his or am I not? They are continually occupied with self, either their good self or their bad self. And thus their peace is at an end. Instead of affection set upon Christ, their attention is turned within, occupied with their faith or their lack of it. 
Instead of walking in the glorious sunshine of the conscious favor of God, they dwell in Dowden Castle or flounder in the slough of despondency. Thus, instead of themselves being teachers of others, they have need that one teach them again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. They are fit only for the kindergarten. They require to be told once more that faith looks away from self and is occupied entirely with another. They need to be told that Christ, not faith, is the sinner's savior, that faith is simply the empty hand extended to receive from him. You see the difference? You see the difference. Because as we explain the spiritual nuclear reactor of holy energy, that is the double imputation of Christ, you can see that some babe might come crawling up frantically waving, this isn't the gospel. You're not, you're not preaching the gospel anymore. I need, I need the basics of the gospel. All while they're choking on the turkey leg that's sticking out of their mouth. And that's the battle that this very church fought. Us, here, in this room. Look, you can say it's not milk when we serve up a roast turkey. That's fine. But you can't say that it's not food. Only a dead man would do that. You say, well, don't you still need to preach the gospel? Don't you still need to preach those components, those things that we're supposed to leave? It is the gospel. It is the gospel. When you come to my house, I don't stop at the door and make sure you recognize my fine foundation. And then only once you recognize it, then bring you through the threshold. There's no delineation between the two. If I didn't have a foundation, I wouldn't have a house. If I only have a foundation, I have no house to bring you to. Spurgeon says this, I've not said anything to you yet who are unconverted in this whole message. This is his last paragraph. One word, says one, one word, one word. Well, here it is for you. I'll, I'll give you this, this one thing. Prepare to meet thy God. But how, you say? Here's a second word. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He that believeth on him shall never perish, but have eternal life. To believe is to trust. Trust. Trust Jesus and be saved. Amen. Is that faithful? Is that faithful preaching of the gospel? Is that enough? Is it satisfying? He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. You need to know your Bible. You need to serve it, it, the Logos, the eternal word. Jesus Christ has a claim on your life. You serve him. Eddie Pink says elsewhere, he says, there are few who seem to realize that truth has to be bought. You have to pay for it. You have to buy truth. It's purchased at the cost of subordinating temporal interests to spiritual ones. Putting the things that you care about on this earth underneath the spiritual ones. This isn't Gnosticism. This isn't asceticism. If the Christian is to increase in the knowledge of God, he has to give himself wholeheartedly to the things of God. It must be purchased. And so I don't want to leave you hanging. I, I think one of the worst things that we can do is say, know your Bible, and then not explain how to know the Bible. 
These are some steps from milk to meat. But remember, it's only helpful by training and constant practice. You can have a handsaw and you can have a hammer and that don't make you no carpenter. You don't know how to use it. And some very practical things. I acquired some of these from asking our other elders as well, their, their habits. You should know all the books of the Bible in order. You just should. You should. <laughs> if, if, you, if the Bible has a claim on your life, you should know what's in it. And this is the easiest way to start. If you already know there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, congratulations. Next step, you got to know the books. You should know them in order. If you don't, start with the New Testament. That's fine. That's where we are most of the time. It's smaller. There's only 27. Start there. My parents used to teach fourth grade Sunday school, and they trained me on the books of the Bible. And I knew that when you got to their class, if you could recite all the books of the New Testament in order, they would give you a shirt. And on the first day in the class, I got a shirt, and I knew it. I was, I was ready for it. And it was a song, and I still use the song to this day. Still use the song to this day, and I know the other ones do as well, okay? For me, the Old Testament is a rap, and you will never hear it. Don't ask, okay? <laughs> if I don't remember exactly where it's at, I'll start halfway through the song. Like, I know where chorus two is, and it's an important thing for you to know. You, we don't have to start at Matthew every time, right? Know the books of the Bible, you should know the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. You should know the covenants of the Bible. Maybe once you know all of the names of each book, then you should know the main theme of each book. You should know who Matthew's talking to. Matthew's talking to the Jews because he's talking to them about a king. And so when you read Matthew, you're going to hear a lot of king language. There's a reason for that. When you read Luke, you need to know that it's to the Greeks. They're concerned about the man of God. You're going to hear a lot more of his humanity in that gospel. That matters. You shouldn't be surprised when you're reading it. Like, man, he talks about this a lot. Yeah, that was the point. It's what he's trying to convey. You should know what Jude's about. One of Matt's favorite stories when we talk about this is relating it. One time I said, apparently, I don't remember what Jude was about. So I went and read it and he goes, I need to do that more. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You don't know what Jude means? It talks about, go read it. It's spicy. It's really short. You should abide in the word daily. I prefer this term to read or study or meditate or memorize or devotional. It covers all those, all right? And it speaks to what we're actually after. God's word oozing out of all of your life. Abiding in it. Now listen, for me, when it comes to my life and the way that I do this, Man, I know those scriptures, I'm, and I'm continually learning them, and I have a lot to learn, but, but I know them. It's kind of required for me to do what I do. I know them, but the way that I abide is not by any scheme of memorization or, or devotional or study. I do all these things, but I speak. I live my life from principle. It's not a personality trait. It's not unique to, to Rusty. It's not because I'm a five on the Enneagram or an INTJ or a man or even an elder. It's because God is God and he has a character and his character informs his word and his word was spoken and I have an obligation to listen. Now let's work backwards. 
In listening, I'm formed by that word, which is a reflection of his character. So I make every effort that every time I speak, that it comes from principle-formed character. Whether it's to my wife or to my kids or to you or to myself. I want what I know of God and who he is to come out in what I say and how I act. I know these things through the word of God. So in conversation, I'm not quoting scripture, but I am. I don't have to crack my Bible open to bring Jonah to you. To speak from the story of scripture. Or my understanding of God and who he is. This is me. This is what we're talking about. This is discernment training. This constant practice distinguishing good from evil. It helps you know the difference between B and B flat. And they're really close together. And oftentimes you don't have the luxury of hearing them both at the same time to hear the dissonance. You have to hear the B flat and say, that's not right. I would encourage you as well, another method. If the gospel is the heart, then you should move on to know basic systematics, the skeleton of our doctrine. After you have that, you should go study each one of those individually and put meat on the body of knowledge. You learn about all the different forms of theology that are there, and then you blow them up and make them bigger and swell and biggen, right? Maturity. Read Pink's Attributes of God and Packer's Knowing God for Theology Proper. Read Mortification of Sin by Owen for Hermardiology. Read Pleasing God by Sproul for Sanctification. Heck, read Church History to know whose shoulders you stand on and what battles have already been fought, lest we not laugh in the face of them when resurrected in modern times. And this we will do if God permits. If God permits. You see, this is what training and practice looks like. Picking it up and doing something with it. And doing it horribly at first. But then growing from it. And learning and practicing and growing. Becoming more mature. Being teachers. Discipling others. Doing what God has told us to do. And this we will do if God permits. Spurgeon says this, Dear friend, I must give you a word of rebuke. It must be gently, for you are our brother, and if you be but a babe yet, if you have life in you, you are saved. But why should you always be a babe, dear brother? Is it not that you've been too worldly? You have made money. Oh, I wish you would have made an increase of grace instead. You've been very attentive to those carts and horses and to that farm and to that speculation. You've attended very diligently to that sales room and to that exchange. Oh, if you had been as diligent in prayer, if you had been as diligent for your Bible as for your ledger, and if you had ridden in the chariots of salvation as often as you had ridden your own horse about your farm, how much better a Christian you might have been. Do you not see, brother? You've been stinting yourself of food. You do not read the scriptures, which are the food of the saints. You have stinted yourself of breath. And if a man is short of breath, he will not have much to boast over. If you want to grow, you want to pray more. My dear brother, surely you have attached too little importance to these things. You have not enough considered them. Why not begin to search the scriptures? Why not try to live nearer to God? Why not pant after a greater conformity to Christ's image? 
Why? What a Christian you might be then. I do ask my Lord often this one mercy, not only to make this church as it is the largest church in Christendom, but to be pleased to make us also strong men. Oh, if I can have in this church a body of strong men and women who know what they have received and hold it fast and grow in grace, who shall have their eyes lit up at the enthusiasm because their hearts are burning with a divine fervor why there is nothing impossible to you. If you want revival, that's revival. Grow up. Go on. Slay dragons. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, you are unsearchable, you are unknowable, but Father, you have seen fit to condescend yourself, to accommodate us, to be able to glimpse you, to know you. Father, your word given to us is the representation of your character, of who you are. We need not wonder, we need not guess. You are clear in what you have given us. Father, we thank you for that. Father, let us actually treasure this the way that it should be treasured. Father, how much we have neglected the strong meat that you have provided for us. Father, let us make no more excuses. That's what children do. Let us own our dullness. Let us own our laziness. And Father, today, move to knowing you, that we might grow in loving you, Father, that we might serve you in obedience. Father, we will never come to an obedient life if we don't first know your word. Father, I pray that you would give us a church full of men and women who know what they have received. There's so much to be said about this. This double imputation, this picture of the righteousness of Christ that is ours. This nuclear reactor of holy energy that we have is unending, is powerful. And Father, that we might go into this world and slay dragons and stop being afraid of every little grasshopper that surprises us. Father, we thank you for what you've given us. I pray for courage and boldness and growth. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.